You're listening to the Douglas Jacoby Podcast. Here we bring you some of the material found on Douglas's website in podcast form. We hope that as you listen, you are challenged to think about faith. Today, Douglas continues his series, A Tour Through John. Now looking at Lesson 13. For more on this episode, follow the link in the show notes to Douglas's website. Now here's today's teaching. Buenos dias. Good morning. Still in Cuba. We're going to be studying about half of John chapter 6 today, and this will include the I am statements, one of the structural features, uh, repeated features in the Gospel of John. Let's jump right in. After this, Jesus went to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, also called the Sea of Tiberias. A large crowd kept following him because they saw the signs that he was doing for the sick. Jesus went up the mountain and sat down there with his disciples. Okay, John 6 takes place after John 5, uh, where we read the healing at the pool and then the extended dialogue following. But the writer, John, doesn't tell us whether the gap between what is in John 5 and John 6 is days, weeks, months, or even years. He just says, after this, try not to read too much into these Uh, chronological connecting phrases. Uh, uh, Another comment, uh, he identifies the Sea of Galilee, uh, and he says it's also called the Sea of Tiberias. Now, this suggests that the readers were not familiar with the places and events of which he writes. In other words, John probably wasn't writing for the church in Jaffa or Jerusalem. Uh, This would be for uh, a much broader audience, much more broadly spread uh, there's a third name, by the way, for the freshwater lake, and that's the Sea of uh, Kinnereth. A large crowd, as we read, is following uh, Jesus. Their motivation um, is their interest, it seems, in the sensational aspects of Jesus's ministry. They kept following him, John says, because they saw the signs he was doing for the sick. Then Jesus sits down, normal posture, when a rabbi was teaching his disciples. Let's continue. Now the Passover, the festival of the Jews, was near. When he looked up and saw a large crowd coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, Where are we to buy bread for these people to eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he was going to do. Philip answered him, Six months' wages would not buy enough bread for each of them to get a little. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many people? Jesus said, make the people sit down. Now, there was a great deal of grass in the place, so they sat down, about 5,000 in all. Then Jesus took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. When they were satisfied, he told his disciples, gather up the fragments left over so that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up, and from the fragments of the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten, they filled twelve baskets. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they began to say, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Well, if you noticed the reference to Passover, again, uh, in verse 4, the festival of the Jews, this is one of those many Passovers in the Gospel of John. And Jesus is going to take advantage of uh, of this time to teach his disciples. And 
he tests Philip. Ask him, how how are you guys going to feed the crowd? Thanks to the small boy, the pump is primed and the miracle is set in process. Uh, Notice that the people are sitting down on grass. To us, that may be very minor. Uh, It's green grass, as Mark chapter 6 confirms. So that means that he's teaching in the springtime, before the dry season, when everything goes brown, when it doesn't rain for many months. So we don't know for sure what year, uh, but, you know, this this could be the year uh, 28, maybe 29. Now, the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is found in all four Gospels. Matthew 14 um, tells us that the 5,000 is an approximation, including men only, not women and children. Uh, in the Bible times, they counted males uh, in Old Testament and in the New Testament. The early church uh, had the same um, a custom as we see in Acts 2.41 and also in Acts 4.4. Uh, this was nothing against the men and women, but the way society was structured, they just counted uh, men. So the crowd may have been 6,000 or 10,000. Uh, no one really knows. Difficult to determine. And the uh, another little comment, uh, when Philip says, oh, it would take six months' wages or eight months' wages— um, the NRSV says six, the NIV says eight. Uh, that's the rendering of 200 denarii. And a denarius was basically a day's wage. So uh, Philip isn't, hasn't done some calculation that's, uh, you know, that's very involved. He simply says that it would take you know, months and months of wages. And there you go. The crowd, of course, are filled. There's leftover food. They're totally amazed. It's an amazing miracle. Again, it's in all four Gospels. Now, when Jesus realized, verse 15, this is the result of his miracle, he realized they're about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they wanted to coronate him. They thought, this is just amazing. We need a king. Uh, We want to go back to the time of David. Let's let's return to the golden age. Earlier today, um, a friend, a neighbor came over and he wanted to see some of my ancient coins. And I was showing him one of the coins that the Jewish rebels had uh, struck uh, once the rebellion broke out. You know, there was a huge war between Rome and and, uh, the Jews in 66 to 70 AD. And this was actually dated year two. uh, And not only year, year two would be around 68. And they, they reverted to old-fashioned Hebrew script, Paleo-Hebrew script, the kind they use at the time of David. They're, like, they're trying to, to go back, and they're, they're definitely thinking of, of politics and violence and war if necessary and re- resetting the clock, um, the political agenda. So that political agenda is actually what led to the destruction of the temple, as Jesus prophesies in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's what led to, well... Um, in a sense, the end of all forms of Judaism except two, the Judaism of the Pharisees, which survived and is the ancestor of modern Judaism, and the Judaism of Christianity, which is an extension of the Jewish religion, the Old Testament. So these guys have a political agenda. It's a contrast uh, to what Christ taught today. I mean, often faith is equated with one political party or another, right? Linking religion and politics was something Jesus completely avoided because politics involves force. If you're using power, then those who refuse to submit to the will of the state will be forced to commit, uh, submit at gunpoint, we could say. 
those who don't put the state first could be even imprisoned or executed. But Jesus renounced that. Uh, remember that time he set Peter up, he, the thing with the swords? So he, he has them get the swords. Then in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, I guess he knew someone would, would draw the sword. Uh, the ear is cut off the servant of the high priest. Jesus heals him and tells Peter to put away the sword. All who draw the sword will die by the sword. He seems to have gone out of his way to create uh, a moment, even for his disciples, who had been with him several years, because these these deep uh, thoughts and expectations of uh, politics and force and the political agenda, they die very slowly. Anyway, Jesus resists the overtures of the fickle crowds. He withdraws, withdraws presumably to pray. And meanwhile, his disciples set out across the lake. Okay, let me just make one other point um, uh, kind of on the political uh, front here. And that is, if Jesus had wanted his followers to uh, get into the political game, uh, like become a king, well, because it could be objected that Jesus needed to die. Okay, he knew that. He had predicted that. But he could have said, look, here's Peter. Here's James. These guys are brilliant. John, uh, they're impressive. They're powerful. Let's let one of them be the king. But Jesus is method is so far from such thinking. Uh, Think about that as you read through the Gospels. Verse 16, when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. Of course, (laughs) they're terrified. But he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they wanted to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat reached the land toward which they were going. Wow, here's a, an amazing passage. Jesus walks on water. Of course, these guys are in total shock. So Jesus has been on the mountain, presumably time alone with, with the Father, and the disciples were just trying to save time. Um, the Sea of Galilee is not huge, but there are times where it would be quicker uh, to just cut the corner, to uh, row across uh, than to do the land route. And they'd been out three or four miles, but it had taken a lot of time because of the weather. And I can attest to this. The first time I was ever on the Sea of Galilee, uh, it was calm. All of a sudden, the wind came down. Um, the the waves were um, kind of whipped up. Uh, the boat was being tossed. People were getting sick. Uh, you, you can imagine, it happens quite uh, easily here. So he walks on water, and there is an Old Testament connection here. And that is that in the Old Testament, God, Yahweh, uh, plants his feet in the sea. He tramples the waves of the sea, Job 9, 8. Psalm 77, your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. So it seems to be an allusion in Jesus's action to um, the, this, uh, this notion of God walking on the waters in Job and in Psalms. Of course, it, it brings a question to us. When we've been rowing hard in rough seas in our lives and we're fatigued or tempted to be frightened, how quickly do we invite Jesus into our boat? Because notice, as soon as he comes in, they reach their destination. It seems like instantaneous, and that, that itself seems like a miracle. It's not just walking on the sea, but it's they, they're all, all of a sudden they're at their destination. 
it's kind of like the passage in uh, Acts 8, I think, where Philip has been evangelized in the Ethiopian, and then the Spirit takes him away, and he appears at Azotus. And does that mean that he appeared instantaneously, or does it mean he ran faster than Elijah? I, I don't know. Uh, but try to be aware of all these details as we study. The next day, the crowd that had stayed on the other side of the sea saw there that there had been only one boat there. They also saw that Jesus had not got into the boat with his disciples, but his disciples had gone away alone. Okay, so they realized Jesus wasn't with them, but the disciples are gone. The boat is gone, right? Then some boats from Tiberias came near the place where they'd eaten the bread after the Lord gave thanks. So when the crowd saw that neither Jesus nor his disciples were there, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum looking for Jesus. So they want to follow Jesus, and they have to just have to wait for boats to come, and the boats are brought, and there, there they go. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Um, fair question. <laughs> uh, they could have asked, how did you get here? Um, it's a very long walk. Well, he took a shortcut. Jesus answered them, very truly I tell you, you're looking for me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Hmm. The Lord challenges their motives. He challenges your motives, my motives. When he says it's not because you saw the signs, we're to believe, we're to understand that they didn't see the signs and respond the way they should have responded. That is, the signs point to Jesus' authority, his divinity, um, his lordship. Uh, but their, their motive was, uh, was something more crude. Why are most people attracted to Christianity and to church, even in our day? Are motives in the 21st century, what do you think, more or less the same as those in the first century? People often say Christianity is exploding, particularly in the, uh, the two-thirds world and, and in the Southern Hemisphere and Africa, Asia and, and, and uh, South America. Yet so much of the explosion is the health and wealth gospel. It's the prosperity preaching. It's bread, free bread. And I'm not saying it's all uh, frivolous or, or nothing. But uh, to me, from where I sit, it looks like that's what most of it is. But what are our motives? Earlier in the chapter, Jesus had fed the 5,000, right? He, he greatly aroused their curiosity, but something's wrong. Their motives aren't right, and now he's going to challenge that. He says, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For it is on him that God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to perform the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. So they said to him, What sign are you going to give us then so that we may see it and believe you? What work are you performing? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus said to them, Very truly, I tell you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. But it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Oh, those are words kind of like the Samaritan woman, right? Sir, give me this water so I don't have to keep drawing water. Sir, give us this bread always. So he's challenging their motives. Uh, and they challenge him by asking him to prove his point by performing a miracle, right? Uh, they're asking him to work a miracle again. This is, reminds me of, of Pharaoh's stubborn refusal to believe despite seeing many miracles. 
And it reminds us also, uh, particularly from the context of the desert generation, that is, those who followed Moses into the desert for 40 years, who most, nearly all of whom uh, lacked real faith. And in, in Moses' day, uh, they ate bread. Can Jesus offer more? Oh, yes. And that's a, that's a good question because he had just given a large crowd plenty of bread. Now, Jesus points out that um, it wasn't technically Moses who gave the bread. I mean, he was in charge, but it was God, right? God the Father did it. Uh, there's an ancient Jewish saying, as the first redeemer brought down the manna, so will also the last redeemer cause manna to come down. That was that shows the messianic expectation. Jews were were believing that the, the um, last redeemer would cause the manna to come down. And that's exactly what Jesus did. His miracle is anticipated in 2 Kings when Elisha, hey, if you don't know the story, it's in 2 Kings, uh, look up 444, starts right before then, and he feeds a much smaller number. Uh, and there are actually quite a few uh, parallels between uh, Jesus and Elisha and Jesus and Elijah. Let me make one more comment on verse 29. Jesus said, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So interestingly, faith is a work. I mean, faith is something we do. Faith is something we do. So when people, um, I think, often get, get the wrong end of the stick here, you know, that any work we do will, will prove that we're trying to earn it on our own, and therefore we can't be saved. It has to be faith alone, you know, the Protestant idea. Well, this uh, kind of explodes that, doesn't it? Uh, one more verse. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Right? So the, the, the bread's going to come down from heaven, right? I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never be hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. Oh, and then verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, yet do not believe. So ultimately, we know Jesus will offer himself as the bread of life. There's a, um, a Jewish saying, it's in the book of Sirach, whoever feeds on me will be hungry no more. Whoever drinks from me will thirst no more. See, so there, there are many things in the Old Testament scriptures and outside expectations uh, that the audience would have had that would have helped them to identify Jesus. Now, if we're going to follow him, he's got to be our source of sustenance. He has to be our bread of life. Nothing else will do, not the pursuit of health or longevity or recreation or professional success, sensual experience, uh, drugs, uh, sleep. I, I mean, he's got to be our source. Well, you would have recognized the nature of this saying, I am the bread of life. This is the first of the seven I am statements in John. Remember, John has three, has seven, it's got three sevens. It's got seven testimonies, you know, confessions of Jesus' identity. It's got seven signs. But we have these seven I am statements. Each points to his divinity, since in the Old Testament, I am is the name of Yahweh, Exodus 3. And thus, each statement tells us something different about how Jesus is God, or should I say, how we are able to see God in Jesus. Now, I have to admit, before I continue, the early church may not have made this point, and you'd think um, with the I am statements, that would have been very useful considering the early church was led by Jews and there's always an outreach to the Jews. But there's no record surviving um, that, that I know of, uh, of them actually making the point about the I am statements. <laughs> but it works well. It works well. 
Uh, the seven I am st- sayings, I am the bread of life, 635. I am the light of the world, 812. I am the gate for the sheep, 107. I am the good shepherd, 1011. I am the resurrection and the life, 1125. I am the way and the truth and the life, 146. And last, I am the true vine, 151. So John is making adva- taking advantage of seven. Seven is that perfect number or com- number of completion. And he gives us seven statements, but there are at least seven more that I've found. I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand, right? Mark 14. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting, which appears twice in Acts. I am the Alpha and the Omega, which is three times in Revelation. I am the root of the offspring of David, which is at the end of Revelation. Maybe you can find more. So these sayings, um, uh, they're, they're terrific. And as I, I mentioned uh, in an earlier lesson, it makes a great Bible discussion just to go through those statements. I guess you could do one a week or you could do all in one go, but they're very faith building. The real question, is Jesus the bread of life for me? You know, what is my bread? And as I read passages like Deuteronomy 8.3, the one Jesus quotes when he's tempted, man doesn't live by bread alone, or Jeremiah 15.16, when your words came, I ate them, and other passages, can I honestly say that I thrive on the word of God? I mean, is that what keeps me going, God and the word of God? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the chance to go through John 6. Be with us tomorrow as we complete the chapter. We thank you for the revelation of your son as the bread of life. And we know most people don't even know about that. And they're looking for something else to keep them going. Uh, just like the, the work, um, the food to, to, to finish uh, the mission that you've given to us uh, back from chapter four. Help us to really get on the wavelength that Jesus is on. Help us to humbly identify with his followers, and but also to, to respect the process of training. May Jesus lead us and disciple us, and we pray through him. Amen. Well, thanks for listening. Tomorrow we will continue in John 6.37. We'll go to the end of the chapter. Have a terrific day. We hope you enjoyed Douglas's teaching on a tour through John. For additional notes and resources, be sure to check out Douglas's website in the show notes. The website has hundreds of articles, podcasts, and videos for you to access for free. You can also become a premium subscriber and gain access to thousands of online resources from Douglas's teaching ministry. Thanks again for listening.